0: Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Chris Powers, founder and executive chairman of Fort Capital and host of the Fort Podcast. Chris is a serial entrepreneur with more than 18 years of real estate development and investment experience. He founded Fort Capital, and to date, the company has invested over $2 billion in Class B industrial, commercial, multifamily, student housing, residential land development projects throughout the state of Texas and the Sun Belt. Chris spends his time focusing on Fort's long-term strategy, fostering strategic relationships and building capital partnerships that will help complement the firm's growth. Chris has also hosted the Fort podcast and has published over 255 episodes to date through a series of raw business conversations with leaders and entrepreneurs. If you're on Twitter, you'll know Chris is an active member of the Retweet community, which if you aren't familiar, is a group of real estate professionals That are active on Twitter. I've had the opportunity to get to know Chris over the last several years, including as a guest on his podcast. And today I'm excited to flip the microphone on Chris and get to know him and learn more about his personal journey and the story of Fort Capital. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the timeline of Chris's career, some of the lessons that he's learned, and the unique strategies that they're deploying at Fort Capital. And we'll discuss why Fort is considering raising institutional capital for the first time.
1: Chris, so great to see you. Welcome to the show. Brandon, it is great to be with you as always, my friend. Thank you for having me on my show today.
0: Well, it is my pleasure. As you know, I've been a big fan of the Fort podcast for a long time, so I'm excited to spend a little bit of time today flipping the script. And uh, getting to know you a little bit better, or help our listeners get to know you a little bit better, and learning more about what you're building at Fort. So maybe we could start with a brief self-introduction. Let's talk about your journey into commercial real estate. How'd you get started? And we can move on to your vision for the impetus of Fort and what you've built to date.
1: Yeah, my story is a little bit unique, but it's characterized along the way probably by great people at every different part of my life that was willing to pour into me and help me get where I was going. And so for me, my my real estate career started in college. It kind of found me. I didn't really find it. And I started buying rental houses my freshman year of college. And I did that because I needed to make money to spend in college and had met a really good friend, probably my first huge person in my life that changed my life, a guy named Adam Blake. And he had won a series of awards for entrepreneurship, and it all revolved around buying rental properties. And so this is 2004, by the way, for listeners. So this is kind of pre-Great Financial Crisis. And what I learned through all that was, at the time, um, really anybody could buy a house. And by anybody, I mean a 17-year-old with no credit and no money and no historical track record of owning property could buy one. And so what I do, I bought a rental house and what happened after that was I, I got it rented to some students and then I took it back to the place I'd gotten a loan and I was able to refinance that house like within the year. I I can't remember exactly how long it was and pull like 40 grand out of the house. And so I had like cash. I was so naive at the time. I actually thought I had made money. I didn't realize I had just taken on a bigger loan. But that was really the start of my career in real estate. And it's kind of snowballed from there. I kept buying more rental properties. I started a leasing business in college that would lease to all the TCU students. We started, and when I say lease to TCU students, we started RentByTCU.com, which at the time was a novel idea. Most people at that time were just putting signs in the yard. And we were actually putting them online and, and kind of aggregating all the different landlords and giving people a place to go and search to rent. We started managing properties, and then I graduated in 2008 in the middle of the great financial crisis. But right before that, I had gotten a line of credit with Wells Fargo, and that gave me liquidity heading into the crisis. And what I thought I was going to use it for when I got it in like 07 was just buying more houses around TCU. What I ended up doing with it was buying foreclosed properties down in South Fort Worth, and that's how I got into flipping houses. And I could go on and on about how it built- but the early days—that was, you know, 2004, so almost 19 years ago, uh, when I bought my first property. And I've really, today, the Fort Capital that you know is a much different Fort Capital with a much different structure and a team and great things. But from my perspective, it's been one journey that's been going on for you know 18 or 19 years now.
0: Well, you've already exceeded my expectations because we've probably spoken 50 to 100 times over the last six or seven years, and I've already learned something new. So, I'm excited to uh, to continue to roll with this. Before we go deeper into your personal journey and the Ford's journey, why real estate? I mean, as a college kid at TCU, what was interesting to you about commercial real estate? Did you grow up in a real estate family? Was this, you know, you met a buddy who obviously knew what they were doing here, but how did you kind of stumble into the real estate side of things?
1: Yeah, I think one, another amazing person in my life, again, this will be characterized, a guy named Meyer Marcus from El Paso. He's one of the largest landlords in El Paso and really throughout the Southwestern United States of retail properties. And I admired him throughout high school and growing up. And so real estate was always on my mind. Why I got into it at this moment, again, was to make money. And when I found out the type of money you could make at that age, and you got to remember, you know, 0405, when the market was really hot, one thing I didn't mention was my first loan, I put 3% down, I got 6% cash back at closing. So I was buying these houses with no money down. I had a mentor in my life growing up that was in real estate. So that was interesting. And then when I met Adam, who had, who had, had actually done it, but was he was 18 years old. So it was actually, it became more realistic that I could do this too. Um, All the pieces kind of fell together. The second reason why is it's just pretty simple to understand, which for me is kind of a theme in my life. I've tried to stick to things that are kind of easy to wrap your mind around. I mean, at its core, real estate is something you can see, feel, touch. Um, it's something we interact with every day. So you, we kind of understand it from that level. I mean, even if you're not in real estate, maybe you don't know the numbers, but you kind of understand how it works. And it was a very simple business model. It was like, buy something for X and try and lease it for this. And there's a margin. And that was something I could wrap my mind around. And so to say it was anything more than inspiration growing up, the luck of meeting someone, needing to make money, and something simple to understand, that's probably the genesis of like what I was thinking at the time. Now, obviously, over the years, I've become more in love with it. I've learned a lot more, and I've become way more interested in it but that's really kind of the impetus of how it started and for me I think just being entrepreneurial and what I'd call like a builder once things the once the momentum started happening I think uh, I'd be lying to say I didn't think well we could grow this into something much bigger and we'll do what we can and that that's kind of what pushed me to keep going and eventually get into commercial real estate and kind of see how far we can take this thing so that's probably, I guess, the best answer I could give to like how I got into it, why I was interested in it.
0: Just out of curiosity, what did you study in college? And the reason I asked that question is a lot of people go into college or university and think that they're going to do one thing and end up doing something totally different. So was there kind of intentionality behind this, given the mentorship growing up, or did you
1: truly stumble into it? I truly stumbled into it. So I think I started... Oh, man. I'll be honest. When I went to college, so my dad went to Harvard and he was from the Northeast and I was definitely not smart enough to go to Harvard. I didn't want to go to Harvard. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I didn't even really wasn't even sold on like college having to go to college. For me, it was just kind of like I was going to do it because other people were doing it. I got a partial scholarship and it worked out. But I really probably thought I was going to be an investment banker. I thought I was going to work at Goldman Sachs and go do investment banking. And if you ask me why I was going to do that, I, again, I have no great answer other than at the time, in 04, 05, 06, like, that was the, the big job you could get. Wall Street seemed fascinating. You could make money. I don't even think I knew what investment bankers did to like, my senior year of college. But I think I went around telling people, like, I'm going to be an investment banker one day that's probably the only time in my career I can remember ever thinking I was going to be something different than what ended up happening. But what was happening along the way was I was building a real estate portfolio. I had a real estate company. And I remember like it dawned on me senior year. This was like just before the crash. I was thinking I was applying to jobs. I don't even think I've ever told this part. I did apply to investment banks. But what I never really... Reconciled with was it's not, I wasn't in a position to graduate college and leave. I had all these properties, I had management agreements, I was leasing. And so I never really thought it through. So maybe in subconsciously, I kind of realized I never was going to do it. But once 08 hit, it solidified I was never going to be an investment banker because there was no investment banking jobs. And I had to manage all these houses and stuff we'd put together in Fort Worth. And so that dream just kind of went away pretty quickly. But No, I I think I studied finance, and then I got midway through, I got a marketing degree. And for anybody listening that maybe if you're young and in college, I would say my marketing degree is the only classes in college I can remember that to this day, I still derived a lot of value from. Finance in college is just taking tests. I don't think you really understand what's going on, but you can learn a lot in marketing. And I'll remember my my, um, marketing professor telling me... You don't need an accountant and you don't need a finance person if you can't sell yourself and you can't sell your product. So don't worry about those other things. Learn how to market. And I think naturally I already loved marketing, but to this day, his name's Bob Aiken, again, another influential person in my life and a guy named John Thompson. They both really got me interested in marketing. And that was probably what I took from my at least studies from college the most seriously was marketing.
0: Well, I'm sure they'd be proud to hear that. So if you're not already, send this over to them as a uh, as a thank you for the influence that they've I had will. on you. I will. I think we'll come back to marketing because that's a big part of your journey at Fort. And I think something that you have done as well or better than anybody I've seen in the industry. But before we go there, so you go to call, you grow up, you have some real estate influence, you stumble into real estate, go to TCU, cut your teeth in the rental properties, graduate with a portfolio, kind of take us through that next stage of the journey. And at what point did Fort Capital come into existence?
1: So so we'll kind of pick up right when we left college. Okay. So graduated in 08 and I actually took a set of fibs. So I'll say something that, again, you're kind of bringing me back to the old days. So graduated college, was in the middle of the great financial crisis and was buying homes that had sold for like a hundred and call it 25 grand in, in 07, 06. And all of a sudden in by 08, 09, we could buy these for 30, 40, $50,000 a pop. And we were just buying them. We were kind of refixing them up and then we were reselling them and trying to sell them for like 89, 9 with a new paint job and you know anything else that needed to happen. And the fib I told was, I actually did have a job for four months. I worked at a, at a company that's now actually national. At the time, it was more regional called Stream Realty. So that my issue was I was flipping like three or four homes at a time. And basically by noon every day, I was twiddling my thumbs. I didn't have a whole lot to do. The world in 09 was like totally quiet. I mean, there just was not a lot of action going on. And I remember thinking most of my friends were still in college is like, if I don't figure out a way to fill up my afternoon, I'm going to probably start drinking in the afternoon, hanging out with my college buddies, which was great, but like not probably what I envisioned after school. So I went and got a job at Stream Realty as a tenant rep broker. And that lasted about four months because four months in, um, I came across my first development deal in Fort Worth, which was like an acre and a half of land right by TCU. And at the same time, I met a gentleman that was building And I met a partner, a guy named Andrew Curtis, and they had been building. And really, the idea came from, okay, why don't we go start building student housing around TCU? It was basically like, I'd put the deals together. They would teach me how to develop and build it. And so I remember three or four months in, I went to my boss at Stream. I said, I really appreciate the opportunity, but I'm going to go develop this property. And that was, I think I was 22 or 23. And so that was the first time I ever had to raise money kind of entitle a site, get plans, do the whole thing. And that was an amazing experience. i never raised money before. Again, Adam Blake, who had been a prior part of my story, came back and, and taught me how to raise money. We put together a great deal. I was so naive that I didn't even know what entitlements were when I quit stream. I just thought we were like gonna buy this land and could just go build on it whenever we needed. And then I remember realizing like it was gonna take six or eight months and we needed all this permission from the city. And that's maybe another theme of my life is sometimes I like do things and then ask for permission or ask for forgiveness later, not because I'm trying to break things, but I just kind of have always moved along quickly. Sometimes that's been good, and sometimes it's it's come back to bite me. But that was the first time for developers, they usually laugh when it's like we bought a piece of property and really didn't know we had to entitle it. So long story short. That was our first development deal. I think we raised like $950,000 from 18 or 19 investors. We built 12 townhomes next to TCU, the TCU Canty townhomes. And that was my first kind of like put together a deal, build a deal, raise money. And that kind of set the career off on a new trajectory. And for the next, so that would have been 2010. Yeah. For the next like two, three years, we started building a lot of student housing, actually started building spec houses, high-end luxury homes. We started putting together land and entitling land for infill development. And that was kind of the company for three or four years. Not a lot of employees kind of doing deals around town and student housing, single family, and then what I would call like land entitlement deals. And then 2014 came and that's when I met Jason. And that's what I would call f- the Fort capital that everybody knows today really began. We kind of had gone from Chris being a guy around town, putting together deals, raising money, building a name for himself to, okay, let's kind of formalize this into a company where we're going to start hiring people and building a culture and building like a full team and and really something that you can go the distance with. And so maybe I'll stop there for a second. I met Jason and we can kind of talk about how the company kind of morphed from there and all the great things that happened. But that was kind of kind of where we are. And, and I left a gap. There's a lot we did from 2010 to 2014. Lots of deals, built lots of things. But that was kind of the first part of my career and how I kind of got outside of owning student rentals to you know, doing much more.
0: And the whole time you're only in Fort Worth, Texas, or had you already expanded geographically?
1: No, only in Fort Worth. And I would say like by the the tail end of that student housing we were building a ton of, and we had built this really interesting niche that looking back on it, I didn't realize we were doing. But we were buying unentitled infill land. and then we were kind of taking a gamble that we could get it entitled. Now, the characteristics of those deals were they had some type of cash flow on them, so that could have been aggregating thirty two homes, renting them out that could be all bulldozed and you could build single family, I mean, a multifamily, lots of different things. And we had built this kind of interesting niche where we were kind of willing to take land risk and understood urban infill land and and how it traded and and how how it developed. And the entitlements were kind of the pop that you got. And so that was how I met Jason, because at the time he had been working for a national home builder that was building infill townhomes and they needed land. And I had the land they needed. And so we did lots of deals together. So, again, another huge influential person in my life, Jason, comes into my life. We're at two separate companies. We're doing deals together. And he just taught me a lot more, even about land. Like, this is how the the majors looked at land. I knew how the multifamily guys looked at land. I didn't necessarily know how the townhome guys looked at land. So, we traded, we did a lot of deals together. And that's when the light bulb started to go off that, you know, maybe working on the same side of the table would be better than working opposite. But at the time, we were going to work at the same side of the table to do something totally different than we're doing today.
0: So I know that your listeners know who Jason is, but some of ours may not. Why don't you give us an overview of Jason and what his role is today at Fort Capital?
1: Yeah. Jason's like a brother. I've been together with Jason. I mean, when you're partners with somebody, you're you, you, you know, it's almost like you're married. Spent a lot of time with that guy over the years. Jason's now the CEO and president of Fort Capital. He runs the operation day to day and he does a magnificent job. He is the only partner in the business with me. He manages and has grown really the operations and the day-to-day leadership team. He has worked on, you know, really building the company. He had that experience and so a lot of what you see today at Fort is remarkable work not just by Jason But by the leadership team that he's kind of brought up and grown and some a lot of the implementation of culture building, team building, how we problem solve, how we come up with new ideas, how we roll new things out into the company, how we train people, a lot of that would have never happened had it not been for Jason. And that's what I think makes a great partnership. I had a different set of skills than he did. And that's kind of how I would describe our relationship today. He's the CEO. I've not been the CEO for probably, I think it's like two, a little over two years. And he's done a remarkable job, you know, building the organization and we work really well together. We have a, a really interesting relationship and it works.
0: That's awesome. Well, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about that later in the podcast, the transition out of the CEO role into the role that you're in today. But before we do, so we've now, you know, established, you're doing land entitlement, taking land risk. And for anyone who knows commercial Mm -hmm. real estate, it's one of the most lucrative and most risky places to play. And you're doing this for single family, multifamily student housing. But the Chris Powers that I know, the Fort Capital that I know, as far as I'm aware, doesn't do any housing anymore. So how did you make the transition from a you know, housing developer, if you will, to a industrial, vertically integrated, you know, owner, operator, investor in industrial?
1: Great question. Looking back on it, it's probably easier to give you a, a reason why it happened at the time. You're just kind of drinking out of a fire hose. But I will go back to one guy I've already mentioned in the podcast, Meyer Marcus. He's He does retail and commercial. And I remember he told me really early on in my career when I was doing residential stuff, whether it be student housing, apartments, or single-family homes, he just said, eventually, you're, you're going to get tired of managing where somebody sleeps at night. He actually said it a little uh, more funny. He said, where people poop at night. And what he meant by that was it's a much more regulated industry. It is a lot more emotional. So when you're dealing with where somebody lives, that is much different than dealing with where somebody works you know, most of the time, not for every business, but when you're dealing with where somebody works, they really want to take care of the place they work. It's how they make their money. It's where they have clients. It's where their employees are. So it's a different mentality. A home is more of an emotional decision. It's where you're raising a family. You're not as necessarily tied down to the place, especially if you don't own it, you could be moving a lot. You know, some people are live differently than others. So you know, you can have a great spot, but if if one tenant's a nuisance, you know, you have a community issue. And so he just kind of said, they're much harder to manage. There's a lot more turnover. You're not going to want to do this forever. And I say all that just before I say, trust me, I got tons of friends in apartments and and that do residential that do an amazing job and take care of their tenants. and But they would tell you it's it's a much more laborious job. And I think I will say this, like I kind of saw the writing on the wall as... Things like next door and a lot of social was coming online. I was thinking, man, it's going to become even harder to manage residential units as time goes by because now the internet allows people to shout to the rooftops. And so some of it was just purely like management styles. Like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. And I had built homes for attorneys. I had built some custom homes and just dealt with that. I had had bad tenants and student rentals. So, I would, I'm kind of giving you a long answer, but I think it's important because it was one of the really early things was like, who do you want to manage? Because once you buy a building, your tenants become close to you if you're a good manager. Then the second thing became, okay, if to, in order to build a, a big company, like Brandon, if you're a tenant in one of my units and I'm doing residential, I can't really leverage you to grow my business. But if you are, say, Starbucks, in one of my buildings and I build a relationship so you, hell, I could do a hundred more Starbucks. Well, that's what happens in commercial. You can actually, your tenants can also become a new source of business for you. So that was one thing that was interesting to me. The second was, again, I kind of mentioned the management. And then really the third at the time was like, everybody wants to be in commercial real estate. That just seemed like the thing to do. And I felt like we could do really big deals and we could kind of keep moving. And so that's how commercial became interesting. It wasn't immediately an industrial thing that became interesting, but it was commercial. Longer leases, easier tenants to manage, You know, obviously very liquid market. Tenants, you could use, not use tenants, you could leverage your relationships with tenants to do more. And there was a lot of sophistication. There's a lot of brokers in the commercial world. There was on whether it would be leasing, tenant rep, investment sales. There was just a lot of information there. And so it just seemed like the next best thing.
0: So here we are. You're into industrial. What does that stage of this journey look like? Is it, you know, one day you made this switch? I mean, it doesn't sound like it was one day. It sounded like it was over time. So you've made this switch you're now buying industrial, you're building industrial. What are you doing? How'd you get into the industrial space? And then talk us through about kind of your focus, because one of the things that I think is unique about Fort is you've picked a sector and within that sector, you've picked a subsector and within that subsector, you've picked specific markets and you do a set of things really, really well versus trying to be all things to all people. So how did we come to this conclusion? Was it luck or was it intentional?
1: A little uh, bit of both. I'd say it was a little bit of both. So you said something at the end there. One thing we realized was we wanted to be a singular focus company. And that actually started because we had kind of grown to the size where, you know, had five or six years of deals under our belts. We had made investors money. But if you really came to us and you're like, what are you good at? we were kind of good at just being deal junkies around Fort Worth. We weren't really a domain expert in any asset class or any one market. We just were kind of hustlers that understood how to make money. But what we started realizing as we went into investors was, we would show them a deal. And now we were trying to raise not a million dollars, but call it maybe $5 million. And a lot of those investors would tell us You know, and once you start raising $5 million, unless you're getting 10000 at a time from 500 investors, you're starting to talk with more savvy, more professional investors. And they just kept telling us, and this was probably 2014-ish, they just said, you know, we'd love to give you the money. We think the townhome deal you've put together is great. The only hesitation is, we don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow thinking about student housing, land, single family. We can't do that. We would rather give money to the group of guys or gals that are coming in here only focused on townhomes. And that conversation came up like two or three times before it. my light bulb clicked, like, oh, wow, we're not going to be able to grow how I would like to see us grow unless we narrow our focus. And so that was probably the biggest driver to focus. And then, you know, again, without Jason, you know, Jason had come from the second largest privately held home builder in the country. So he knew the power of just focusing on building homes. We looked at all of the favorite companies that we wanted to be like, and they all had one thing in common. They were all focused on something. And we could not sit there and look you in the eye and say we were focused on anything. So that was kind of the first decision is, okay, we have to become focused. Then it was, okay, what do we want to focus on? Sometimes in life, it's good to know what you don't want more than it is to know what you want. And so if you think of my career up to that point, that those six years, seven years, we had developed stuff. We had built custom homes for attorneys. We had managed student rentals. We had bought Section 8 housing and managed Section 8 housing. I mean, the full gamut. And so one thing that was like important to me was like, I just want something simple. So I started looking at, okay, what's simple out there? Like the most simple thing that you could possibly buy, own is maybe an industrial building. It's a square box, not a lot of CapEx and like not a lot of risk in understanding um, CapEx risks. It's like the roof needs to be good. The HVACs need to be working and you need to have a good foundation. Tenants seemed easy to work with. These are kind of, you know, industrial folks are kind of blue blood America, not high maintenance tenants. And so that was interesting. And then at the same time, the urban infill last mile verbiage started hitting the market. Okay. Last mile is going to matter. And you could start going in your head. Okay. We get the e-com story. But we also get the story of these cities are growing and there's all these tenants that help cities grow, whether it be servicing them or helping build them. Okay. Where are all those people off saying? Oh, they're in these older industrial buildings. And so it's like, okay, there's a great tenant demand. And then I listened to a podcast by Sam Zell sometime in that year. And he talked about why he never develops anything. He thinks there's way too much risk for not enough reward. He actually said something like, 50% of the return you get from development is just the joy of seeing something come out of the ground. You know, It's funny to think about, but I had developed for six years, and I remember several projects going, man, I worked way too hard for how much money I just made. And you know, you'd kind of build it, then sell it, and then you had to do it all over again. And then I remember talking to a developer, I'll keep it private, I won't say where he worked, but a huge national multifamily developer, and he just said you know, development's great when it's good. Your company grows to hundreds of people and then the crash comes and you shrink back down to 20 people and then you grow it again and you shrink. And he's like, that's just the development model. And I was like, well, I don't want that. That seems inconsistent. I had built a lot, didn't enjoy building and developing as much. But he said something on the podcast. So so then I was like, okay, that resonated with me of just buying stuff because his whole deal is when you buy something, you're really solving for two things. What am I paying for it? And what's it going to cost me to lease it? And that's it. You're not fighting the weather that, you know, rains you out for 30 days because so you can't pour concrete. And there's, you just, you get rid of a lot of risk when you're buying something existing. And then he said, he just started talking about supply constrained markets or supply constrained asset classes. And at one point he was talking about RV parks. It's really hard. You know, a lot of RV parks were built in the seventies, eighties, but it's harder today to get those done. And so he just, I had never really thought about real estate that way up until that point was buying things where you have a supply restriction and class B industrial is about as restricted as any asset class ever to find the land that you need to build one in the, and I'm talking about in the center of a city, you need 20 to 30 acres, you know, flat on a good, you know, highway or somewhere where there's a lot of traffic and, I was like, oh, you can't really rebuild this stuff. In fact, most people are tearing it down to build apartments or hotels or whatever. But then again, the last mile thing was coming up. So it was these confluence of like ideas. It was like some of it had to do with just the ease of management and the ease of understanding it. Some of it had to do with the macro thesis and the demand for it. And it was kind of those two things. And so the interesting part was after six or seven years of doing all this other stuff, we decided to become a singular focus company on something we had actually never done before, but made the most sense. And once we did that, I remember Jason and I talked about it and we went on a retreat and we were like, okay, from this day forward, every single new deal is going to fit in this box. We'll finish all the deals that we've put on our plate. We'll sell them all off. We'll do what we've told our investors we do here. But for every deal going forward, it will only do this one thing. And that way we'll get better at it. Our company will get smarter. The stress levels will get um, a lot less stressful. You know, again, I haven't really said this, but when you're focused on lots of things, your employees don't know what they're showing up to work to do every day. They don't even know if they're gaining, getting better. They just know they're really busy and constantly stressed out. And for me as a founder, like I kind of enjoyed the stress and the fight. I don't anymore, but people like me tend to enjoy change and shiny objects. Most people don't. So we didn't really get into the, the benefits of focus, but we made that decision, industrial for everything going forward, not only because we appreciate the asset class, we just felt it would build a better company and everything else will finish and that will stop. And so the, the company you know today now today is for seven years since 2015. So almost eight years has only been doing industrial. That's what we're known for. That's what our team shows up to do every day. And it's made all the difference.
0: So this is 2020. What year? Five, Uh, 20. This is 2023. (laughs) What year did you make this switch? 2015? I think we,
1: yeah, we made the decision towards the end of 2014, like early 2015. I think we bought our first deal at the end of 2015. Okay, maybe early 2016 so, somewhere in there. So
0: fast forward we're recording this in January of 2023. I think I've got that right. Give us the headline stats on Fort Capital today because we've now have some perspective on how you got there. AUM, units, investors, whatever whatever you want to talk about.
1: Yeah, so today we have almost 50 employees, I believe we're at 46. A remarkable team. So much of the credit of the last 7 years is on their backs their commitment to the company, their willingness to go build something. We are at about a little over a billion in AUM across six and a half million square feet. We have offices in Dallas, Houston, and Fort Worth. We're probably going to open one in San Antonio. We were primarily pure play Texas for the first, call it five, six years. And um, our major markets are DFW, Houston, San Antonio, um, and now we're gonna become more of a pure play sunbelt. And so the next five, 10 years, you'll see us start to expand across the sunbelt. We last year we went into Memphis and we went into Orlando. We love South Florida. You know, everybody loves South Florida, but we definitely do too. And so we'll be looking to expand across those markets. We have syndicated, it's not, not something we've talked about. We've done, we're not a fund. So to date, everything we've done is syndicating deal by deal. We've done 43 deals since 2015 in industrial. And like I said, we have six and a half million square feet, almost seven million. We'll have seven million, I think, next week. We close a deal in Houston. We have 1,400 commercial tenants. We launched a property management business two years ago that manages all of everything we own. So we're owner operators. We also manage about 2 million square feet for third parties. So everything we've sold, those buyers have gone out to market. They've looked at hiring other third party managers, and they've always come back to us and ask, would you continue managing this? And so it's a business that we will take select clients on that have a certain size portfolio and are folks that we culturally align with. But I I suspect that business will also continue to grow. And and it's a great business for us. It keeps us in the market. Yeah. And so that's kind of maybe some of the high level numbers of, of where the company stands today.
0: So let's unpack that. I think there's a lot to understand there. And for listeners who are familiar with the deal by deal or the syndication model, 43 is incredible for folks who are used to raising institutional capital in a fund That seems very daunting and probably impossible to most. So let's talk about what does that process look like when you find a deal? Talk us through kind of the syndication model and some of the pros and if there are cons. Yeah, there's pros and
1: cons for sure. And I think we can talk about maybe what we're thinking about going forward as well. So like a lot of things, we've just been entrepreneurs heads down trying to build a company. Again, I've worked for somebody else for 4 months, but that was about it. I've I've been more than blessed with some amazing people in my life, mentors that have helped teach us, but there was no like grand plan. It was just kind of like let's just keep this thing going. And so, like I had mentioned when we raised money on that TCU deal, the first development we ever did, we raised like 900, 950,000. We just passed the hat, we raised some money from friends and family, and then we just kind of, I mean, honestly like kept doing that. Every time we'd have a deal, we would rush to put a deck together and kind of show as many people and that group kind of kept growing and as you make people money, they tell other people. you know one thing is people with that enjoy investing hang out with people that enjoy investing. People that have money usually hang out with people that have you know discretionary money to invest. And so as you make people money, your kind of reputation expands. And same thing, if you don't make them money, that's how a deal business gets killed really quickly. And so for us, it was never a grand plan. It was just like, this is what we're going to keep doing. Well, you look up year after year and you're kind of faced with the decision. For years, we kind of were like, should we raise a fund this year? We sure are raising a lot of money. It kind of never is over. And I'll say this, I know I'm talking to somebody from Juniper Square, but one of the things that taught that my buddy, Meyer Marcus, who I've mentioned again, another nugget of wisdom he gave me was treat your investors as well as you possibly can, which obviously means giving them a return. So let's just get that part out of the way, but treat them amazing and how you report to them, how you get K ones on time to them, the transparency you give them, because most of the time investors, they're, you're not their only deal. So they're going to be comparing you against other folks. But he really drilled that into my head. And I think it's a really important thing to stop on for a second because I think a lot of people get into the deal business and think I'm here to do deals and like the raising money part's like just something I have to do. He kind of preached to me as like that is as important, if not more important, than finding the deals, the the, the money raising side of it. Now, when I first heard that, I was 23, 24 years old, so it rang a bell. It was Meyer telling me, so I certainly listened. But I don't think I fully appreciated it until like as we sit today, is like, man, what an amazing thing to be told is treat your investors well. So now, kind of getting back to like where we met six, seven years ago. My like dream was to have this amazing portal. I remember we were gonna build like Dropbox and make it kind of fancy so people thought they were logging into something, but was to give them this experience of how they saw deals, how they logged in to see their files how we reported to them. And at the time, we always put a lot of emphasis on that. But when we got Juniper Square, it really kind of changed the game for us because for lots of reasons. It had amazing tools. It allowed us to get a lot of work done without having to do a lot of work. It did the work for us. It made us look very professional. It made us smarter. And to be honest with you, it took what was already kind of a flywheel of getting new investors and it just made it even better. It gave us the confidence of, hey, okay, every new investor isn't, it wasn't like one-to-one more work to per investor. It was like, no, we can actually scale this thing up. And so what ended up happening was, and we can talk about how some of the ways we got investors, but we now have over 800 investors. We have an investor relations team of two. That doesn't mean we don't have other people that help participate, but we have relative, I think people would say 800 and something investors, man, you must have an army of people that just manage them. No, we don't. We have a lot of smart, capable people. We have two people dedicated to it full time, but it allowed us to kind of level up. And what I would tell anybody listening to this is like, as you make your investors money and your track record grows, your track record should be the most handy document you have it's easier to start attracting new investors because you have a a track record of making people money. But we also weren't scared to manage all of them. So it's kind of a long way of saying we did 43 deals where we just kept syndicating deal after deal. We can talk about how syndication works. You get a deal, you get it tied up under contract, you put an investment deck together, you send that out to a group of investors. Let's say we're raising $10 million. You raise that $10 million from however many investors, that could be people that giving you $50,000 all the way to people writing you a $5 million, $8 million check. You're pooling all their capital together to get to your $10 million. The way that they're seeing our deck is we would populate a data room in Juniper Square. They go in and check it. Hey, we like your deal. Hey, we're in. Great. We then send you your PPM and subscription docs, which is how you sign up for our deal we call your capital a week or two ahead of time. And then the day of closing, you know, we wire it in. And then from there, you manage the asset and you distribute cash or you give investor updates, whatever that may be to each investor. Again, one thing that solved a huge problem was you can write the report once, but since Juniper knew everybody's allocation and percentage when it gets sent out it it looks like every single investor is getting a custom document based on their deal again had had, you, had we not had that i don't know really how you can kind of scale up hundreds if not thousands of investors so juniper gave us an extreme amount of confidence and we kept going and where we sit today we've raised over 400 million now doing it that way check by check we have investors that have been with us since that first deal. I mean, we have still have investors that were in that first townhome deal in 2009 with us today. Now we're at, a, I wouldn't, we're at a great crossroads. We did over $500 million last year, bought about 4.5 million square feet. Eventually, you've built basically a perpetual fundraising business inside of a real estate company. We did 16 deals last year. A lot of times you're raising on two or three deals at a time. It's not like you just do one, start the next. A lot of times you're overlapping. And it just got to the point where it's like, okay, we either need to spin this capital raising business out and have it be its own thing, or we need to rethink this because where we think we're headed, which we truly believe, you know, we're at a billion AUM, we truly see a pathway to being a $5 billion AUM company in the next five years we had to just make a decision. Are we going to keep syndicating deal by deal? Are we going to look at institution? Are we going to raise a fund? How are we going to do all this? And so as we sit here today, and we can talk a little more about that if you'd like, this might be the first time we're picking our heads up going, maybe we'll change our model going forward. You know, for the for 2023, we have great partners that we'll continue to syndicate deal by deal with but we are open to institutional capital. We are open to raising a fund. We are actively talking with different folks. I think the pathway forward is that's the next way to grow if we want to continue on the trajectory we're on.
0: I want to go there, but not yet. You kind of glossed over, I think, one of your key ingredients to success, which is your ability to raise capital. So let's just. Take it for what it is. You're an incredible capital raiser. We can talk about why and how in a moment. But, you know, what I guess let me back up. So you are an incredible capital raiser, but you have a unique way of building your network. Of course, you mentioned, you know, when you make money for people, more people want to invest and the flywheel keeps going. But you also have a very robust presence on social media. And you don't know this Chris but I go to a lot of institutional real estate conferences where there's public pension plans and endowments <laughs> defined yeah. benefit defined contribution you know big institutions and their counterparts who are big institutional GPs and I say we have a client who can raise money to the tune of 2 5 10 million dollars in what weeks days hours I don't know what does that look like from that commit to close because I think that is mind-boggling for the person who's grown up in the institutional world where to raise an institutional fund can take upwards of years. And you're looking at upwards of
1: minutes, hours? You tell me. So I think everything you just said can be defined in one thing, trust. When you start dealing with somebody's money, you could know somebody your whole life. As soon as you take a check from them, the relationship changes. It's not like it's a good or bad thing. It just changes. Humans are really weird when it comes to money. The only way anybody can raise money really quickly or raise it abundantly or raise it consistently is they've built trust. You know, maybe one time you could, you know, uh, pull the wool over somebody's eyes, but to do it consistently, you have to have trust. And to do it in that speed, you have people that trust you. Okay, let's talk about how to build trust with people. We talked about the obvious have a track record. Fort Capital's done 43 deals. They've made money on every single one of those deals. I can trust them because they have that track record. The second, there's no better referral in the world than a warm referral. And I would argue a warm referral when it's somebody saying, hey, you should put your money here. That's about as great of a compliment as possible. The walls come down. So we have a flywheel of just our internal 800 people continuously introducing us to their circle. And when somebody's made money with you and they say, hey, meet cousin George or whatever, that immediate conversation is, you're, you know, it might take a year to convince George to invest with us if he knew nobody. But if, you know, his cousin's telling him it's good, you know, you start from a different place. But really, now you're getting into social and podcasting. What social media has allowed folks to do is build what I call build trust at scale. And I could go through several examples of how that's done. Podcasting in particular, you know, people are going to listen to this podcast. They're going to hear two guys talking. There's no pre-recorded. We didn't have a, a big session on what we were going to say. This is about as raw and authentic as it gets. You know, when you're listening to the news or the media, you have all these executives and people like manufacturing a conversation. So by the time a reporter gets in front of the mic... It's not a conversation that anybody would ever have in real life. The way you listen to that is like, that's why in today's world, we're all like, hmm, I wonder if that's real. Because when people listen to two people talk on a podcast, it's authentic. And if you've listened to me talk on five or 10 episodes, you kind of know who I am. You kind of can build a relationship with the host. And so I called it building trust at scale was... How can I try and build trust with as many people as I can? And not everybody's going to trust me and not everybody's going to like what what we do in industrial or fort. That's not the goal. But uh, my goal is how can I reach as many people as I can tell them our message and get and let them have an option. They can be interested in us. And if they're not, that's fine, too. And I did that because I looked around the world and said, man, look at some of the biggest companies in the world their leaders are on social media. Maybe their leaders have a podcast or their leaders in some way have a social presence and people were gravitating towards that. And so we could go down a laundry list of those people. And so the podcast was one I get a lot of joy out of it. It helps a lot of people. It provides knowledge to people. That's number one why I do it. I get a kick out of that. But the second, from a pure business perspective, is I can actually accomplish that, but I can actually scale trust as quickly as I possibly can. The third is any message I want to get out to the world, I can just do it through this microphone. And then if I get asked about it over and over, which tends to happen in life, I can just say, hey, listen to that episode. After you don't listen to that episode, let's talk. What happens there is you never meet a stranger because by the time you talk to somebody, again, you're taking somebody's money. Sometimes you need to meet them 10, 15 times. People feel like they've met us because they've listened. They've listened to Jason and I give annual reviews. They've listened to me do several solo episodes on how we do things at Fort, what we think about the industrial market, what we think about Juniper Square. I mean, name it. So by the time you talk to people, it's funny. It's like these conversations kind of start on third base rather than first base. So That was a strategy was, okay, we're going to meet a lot of people quickly and we're not going to sell them. We're just going to talk what we're doing. And over time, people will either like it or they won't, but it'll attract the people that are attracted to us and it'll repel the people that are not. And we're constantly meeting folks that already kind of align with our values and what we're doing. And that's a very powerful thing because a lot of people waste a lot of time throughout a career just trying to build trust with people. And we said, how can we just accelerate that without diluting the essence of like being genuine?
0: I love that. I mean, I think some of what you're saying is reflected in this notion of a positive selection bias. By the time that you're meeting people, as you said, you never meet a stranger and they already know what you're all about. So you can focus on the brass tacks of what an investment looks like or what advice looks like, et cetera. So there's something to be said. There's a lot to be said for that. I also want to point out that to you, it seemed intuitive to look at what other company leaders that you admire are doing on social. But how many of those leaders that you looked at that you admired that had a social presence were in commercial real estate? Not a lot. Can you give me a single one <laughs>
1: no. besides you? No, yeah. I can't. And so that was one of the opportunities of going, okay. And to be honest with you, when, I, when we first thought about it, I was like, well, maybe this won't work in real estate. Maybe there's a reason why nobody's doing it. And the truth is, the answer was real estate's just super old fashioned. That's purely, it's one of the oldest industries in the world. It's always been done the same way. And I would say I got lucky. You know, there's this thing called retweet on Twitter. And all it is is a community of folks that are in real estate, you know, have too much time on their hands and tweet a lot about real estate. But I kind of got lucky. I, at the same time, this was all happening realized, you know, this was right after this is not a, I'm not saying this is a political thing. I got on Twitter, I think in 2016, what had just happened? Somebody had been elected president that you could arguably say may not have ever become president. Had he not had such a robust Twitter presence. That was when I started going, Oh, wow. Twitter is powerful. Now who cares what he's saying or what anybody says? It's just powerful. Like it's, what does Twitter do? it cuts out the middleman. My message comes directly from me to the audience. Again, you might not like the message, but it's authentic. It's coming straight to you. That was something appealing. And that's why podcast is appealing. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have a Facebook. I don't have Snapchat because those things are more animated and it's more, it's just a different way of communicating. But I got really lucky because right at the time I got on. I found like four or five other folks that had just gotten on. And we all just kind of started tweeting about real estate together. Some had already been on longer. And what formed was this really cool community that we started building across 2018, 2019. Then COVID hit and everybody's locked in their house. It's like, all right, everybody's on Twitter. And that's when it really started to grow and I could go on and on about the amazing things that have happened from being connected on Twitter. But I think anybody that's not on it thinks is like, oh, you're just playing on social media. What I tell those people is like, no, this is a modern business tool for, con- for not only building great friendships. I have made so many close friends that I travel all over the country to see, not to raise money or do deals with them, literally just to hang out. But there is a very much a business element to it is like, If you're using Twitter the right way, you're getting two things out of it. Amazing friendships and business opportunities.
0: I think we'll just leave that there. That's a mind bending concept for a lot of people that aren't on Twitter and aren't a part of retweet and don't fully know that side of your story, but you've done lots of episodes on that. So for those of you who are curious, you could follow Chris. What's your handle? At Fort Worth, Chris. At Fort Worth, Chris. (laughs) That's Twitter. And, you know, I have not had the same success on Twitter that you've had not for a lack of trying i find the consistency and the authenticity to be really challenging i mean you have to be extraordinarily versatile in what you're willing to talk about at least in my opinion and you also have to know how to cut through the noise but you know my own personal success with social is on a different channel via linkedin where you know i've got what 11,000 business people all of whom i personally either know or know someone who knows where every time I hit post, it's like a giant megaphone. My message lands on their screen, on their phone, in their inbox. And the way I know that that works, it's a similar type of philosophy or, or thesis that you have is you know, I see them at conferences and they'll reference something that they saw on LinkedIn. I could be a surf ski trip in Hawaii or you know, some post that I did on a book that they ended up reading and they acknowledge that. And to me, it's just this constant reminder about building trust at scale. I love that term that you use because ultimately, we're all human beings and we all want to be with other human beings we trust. And there's easy ways to do that and hard ways. So you are truly the OG of uh, retweet, if you will. And it's been amazing to watch that part of the story. And I think for, for folks who haven't followed you, they, they should. Now, the little secret on you is there's a lot of secret... Tweeps out there, whatever you call people on Twitter. I can't tell you how often I will meet somebody in the institutional real estate community, specifically large institutional LPs, who, when I mention your name because of the success that you've had building trust at scale, they know you. And so the impact that you've had via your candor on the podcast and Twitter, I think is something that a lot of people have gravitated towards, whether they invest with you or not, they look to you as a resource because you are so open. So I just wanted to make sure that you're aware of that because I know that you live in your world, I live in mine, and and sometimes they're, they're quite different in terms of the people we're interacting with.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah. I think what you just said about, you said something at the beginning, like the cadence and It's like a job, but I, again, I would just tell anybody thinking about it and what you've done on LinkedIn is the same thing because I've, when I think of LinkedIn, I think of you, it's not people think, well, that's not work. I would argue every hour I put into Twitter is you get 10 X out of it. It's like, you're trying to leverage your time. Where else can I leverage my time? And at, to this point, I haven't found a better place to leverage my time. Now that could come one day Go, Yeah, it's just Twitter thing. It's not worth it anymore. But right now, if I treat it as work and go, look, I'm going to spend an hour or two a day on Twitter. Some of that comes with, you know, seeing a bunch of junk, but if you use it correctly and you're there for the right reasons, it's a modern day business tool. It's like showing up in a room of all these peers that are doing exactly what you want or you're interested in. And you can either walk up to a conversation and just lurk and listen to it, i.e. just read what they tweeted. Maybe you can give them a thumbs up. Hey, I liked what you had to say. Or you could comment on it. Or you could start your own conversation. Or you could say, hey, Brandon, let's you and I get out of here and go have a private chat, which either means we go to the DM or I call you. But I always think of it as like at any point in time, this room is always full of people, and I can always go in, and I can either offer value, I can take value. But that's how I've always thought about it. And you know, you said that you talked to some folks that I've probably never met that have heard of it. Is you know, it's exactly that thing, and the trust compounds over time. It continues to spread, and so. But there's one rule: yeah, in order for it to be to work, you have to be authentic and genuine. I think you have to be vulnerable. When you talk to somebody and you're like, "Hey, how you doing today?" and they're like, "Oh, I'm good." I'm more attracted to the persons is like, "Today sucked, and here's why." Or, "Today was great, but here's why." And so you have to be genuine. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to take a little heat and criticism and be able to take it in stride. But the most important thing is you have to be showing up there willing to give more value to the community than you're willing to take from it because we as humans know immediately somebody that's trying to just suck all the value out of a community and and offer nothing in return. And so that's why I've done the podcast. That's why I try and teach things through tweeting is because I just believe the more you kind of give to the community, it'll show up in other areas of your life. And that's how I've always treated it.
0: I love that. I think that's a great metaphor for life in general. All right. Well, you, you kind of teased us with this idea of how 2023 might be a year of Change or a pivot for Fort potentially. You mentioned a fund versus deal by deal. You mentioned the potential for institutional capital versus your traditional capital sources of you know ultra high net worth, high net worth, and fa- friends and family. And let's talk about how do we get to this point? Why is this decision kind of opportunity exist? And what is the next five years look like for you if you could wave your magic wand and kind of script the ideal outcome.
1: Yeah. I would start by saying everything we've done to date has worked and just unbelievably grateful for even being in this situation. I think the thing we have to consider is our company is growing at a nice clip and not because we're we're at this point now where we're just naturally scaling. It's not costing us a ton of energy in the company to scale the company, which it hasn't always been that way. And so what does that mean? One more markets, two. You know, we're now known for something. We've been doing something seven or eight years, so we're seeing deals that most people aren't seeing, and I know that to be true. Everybody says they have an off market pipeline. I, I'm a hundred percent confident we do have one. The deals are getting larger, so we're not doing you know five years. The first deal we ever did, I think, was like three and a half million dollars. The minimum size deal we'll even really t- take seriously right now, unless it's like an adjacent property, is fifteen. And we've we're now looking at stuff as high as three hundred million dollar portfolios. And so you kind of have to ask yourself: one, is this the game we want to play? So we have right now, I'd say we have two to two and a half billion dollars in our pipeline. Now, is that like ready to come out of the ground or ready to buy tomorrow no but that's something that realistically over the next few years is very realistic and so you just have to ask yourself the questions like are we going to one go after that opportunity and if so why and if and if not why what is the capital requirement to get us there and so I'll stop there for a second and then I'll pivot for a second and then I'll come back to that thought the other part is We've built an amazing operating machine. But we also have 43 deals that sit in 43 different LLCs with 43 different bank loans with 43 different sets of investors that over time is just not efficient, depending on the company you want to grow. There's just a lot of extra work you do to manage that as opposed to one kind of vehicle that could have a lot more money in it it's easier to account for, it's, it's maybe one bank you're dealing with, it's one set of investors, one structure, and all the energy that you took raising money perpetually throughout the year, you don't have to do that anymore. You can now spend all that time on finding deals and operating deals. And so for just like operational efficiency, it starts to make sense at some level. And so where we sit today is we go, look, we think You know, given the market shakes out, we could deploy 500 million over the next few years of equity, next two, two and a half years. How do we want to do that? And so, like I said, is like we're going to continue the route that we've been on, but for the first time ever, we are very open and we are actively talking with folks and trying to learn what will be the best for our company going forward. And what I would tell you is, based on where we think we can get this company, and and to say we could be a $5 billion company in assets in five years is not me really saying, and from my perspective, some moonshot goal that like is our big, hairy, audacious goal, and if we don't get there, we failed. It's just going, this is how the company's naturally progressing. This is a, sure, it's a stretch, but it's not that big of a stretch. How do we get there? And... If you then, like we've done our whole life, go let's look at everybody else that has gotten to five billion, or ten billion, or fifty billion. What has happened? Like, what are how they structured? You don't find a lot of groups that have syndicated their way all the way there. Almost, like I, if there is one, there's a few. I actually have a buddy that's done it, but he's now going institutional. I think the most we see just
0: two, three billion of equity via syndication max, and there's. Less than five of those firms I can think
1: of. Yeah. And so the answer isn't like we have to go one way. So we're not doing it for some mandate or like we feel like we can't syndicate anymore. But it, it, again, you just start looking at the landscape going, it makes a lot of sense. We would certainly like to focus more attention on finding deals and operating than just raising money. We think we will always have room for our, our investors that have been with us forever because they'll become part of a larger thing. So it's something we're exploring. We're having great conversations. We're not in a rush. We want to find the right partner that's a cultural fit. You know, something unique about our business, Brandon, is we don't have any other partners. It's Jason and I. We've quote unquote bootstrapped this here. And our team that has our leadership team and and the people that have been with us the longest are invested in this company. We're all in this together. We have nobody that, a board that's telling us to do this. We have no reason to go do it other than, is it the next best thing for the business? And so we have a lot of flexibility, which people find very interesting. Besides being a great operator and and having a you know a solid company, we have a lot of flexibility that a lot of companies at this size don't have. They either have a partner that they have to go to, they have some mandate. We've stayed away from that and we've left our options open. And so I think for the sake of this conversation, we're super open to institutional capital. We're obviously talking to folks. At the same time, if it's not a good fit culturally and it's not the right move, we won't make it. But if you're listening to this and you would like to you know, maybe chat or you think something is resonating, we'd love to hear from you.
0: Or if you want to try to talk Chris out of it, I'm sure he would love (laughs) to hear from you as well. I just kept thinking while you were talking that one of our institutional clients somewhere, probably somebody focused on capital raisings, driving their kids to school in the morning, listening to this, and probably just spit their coffee out because you know, when you're talking about raising money in minutes and hours, they're working on nurturing relationships for decades, and sometimes it doesn't even result in the outcome that they want. It's very much the long game. How do you kind of think about that, you know, fundamental switch from the way that you build trust at scale? with non-institutional capital to just some of the more onerous requirements that come with
1: managing pension, endowment, sovereign, insurance, money? Yeah, it's a great question. I know a little bit, I've talked to people that have taken institutional capital. At the end of the day, like I said, it has to be a great thing for our team. It has to be a great thing for the partners It has to be something that we feel like is adding to taking money for the sake of taking money, but then having to change our whole culture and business because we took a larger check is of no interest. My hope is that somebody out there in this world and all the dollars out there will see what we're doing, will appreciate what we've done, and will want us to keep doing more of that, not become a new business. And like I said, if that doesn't happen, I would rather do what we're doing now and just keep plodding along and doing exactly what we're doing then get big for the sake of getting big, but become miserable along the way to get there. And so this is something we're exploring. Maybe I'm, I've been naive my whole career. I don't know why I would stop now. I believe that somebody is out there that, that we will resonate with. And if we don't resonate with them yet, maybe we will one day. But we'll see what happens. Because like you said, the nightmare stories I hear, I'm not interested in those. And I think anybody listening that knows anything about institutional capital, you kind of know what maybe not nightmare, but just the laborious stuff you do that's not value add. It's more just check the box stuff. Yeah, we're not interested in becoming miserable for a big check. We are interested, however, in acquiring a great asset class across the Southeastern United States, making money for our investors and having a lot of fun doing it. And if we have to change a couple things here and there to make our business, you know, level up to an institution's requirements. So be it. But the the real thing to focus on here is this gigantic opportunity that we think is in front of us and why we think we're one of the best people to attack it. And if somebody doesn't see that, we're probably not going to make it past a few meetings anyway, in my opinion, and we'll just keep syndicating deal by deal. And maybe we'll become one of the companies that syndicates $3 billion. That wouldn't be the worst thing that happened to us but we just feel like it's a moment where there's a lot in front of us. The next few years are going to be really interesting with the markets the way they are. And it's really nice to go into a market, in my opinion, with capital loaded, ready to go. So you can move quickly because those windows are short. And I'm not saying, I think class B industrial is going to have a lot of distress, like some other asset classes. So it's not going to be, who knows, maybe it is, but I think there'll be more distress in other areas, but there's still going to be a lot of dislocation and an opportunity to move quickly. And I don't know, it just seems having some type of pre-committed capital with a partner that gets your strategy would be accretive. Again, though, not going to change our lives and go backwards to make that happen. It has to be good for the whole team and it has to be good for the ownership or we wouldn't do it.
0: Makes perfect sense. And you're in a fortunate position where you can have these conversations And not have your back up against the wall so you remain in the driver's seat. All right. Well, we've been going for a little while. Before I let you go, two more topics that I want to try to cover relatively quickly. One of the things that I think about when I think about Fort Capital is your operational efficiency and your adoption of technology. One of the things that's really interesting is that that's not in your tagline. You don't promote your tech savviness. You don't talk about it, you do it. And in my humble experience, when I see firms talking about their utilization of tech, what it typically means is they buy a lot of it, use very little of it, and it creates a giant disaster. But it's great for marketing if you don't know what you're talking, You know, if the people you're talking to have no idea how to evaluate it. But I've seen under the hood of your investor reports, I've seen under the hood of some of your proprietary technology. I've met with some of the folks on your team who are behind it? What is your like philosophy and approach to building an efficient operating business using technology, and more specifically, like what's the one thing besides Juniper Square that you're most proud of from a technology perspective, or the one thing that's provided the most efficiency for you and the Fort team, or that you rely on the most?
1: Yeah, and so I'll just start by a hundred percent of what I'm about to say, and the credit goes to the team on this, to Jason, to Greg, to Hannah to. Everybody that to Shane. I mean, I can go on and on. If I didn't just say your name, this is a team effort, but so I'll take you through a couple things. And I'm Jason and I talked about this on the year-end podcast. We don't think that technology, like, we're not using technology and, and hoping that the technology is what makes us better or that the technology is going to be some magic that's going to give us something that like maybe we weren't capable of doing. We're just sitting here going, we have all these ideas. And we're going to express them through technology. And we're only going to use it if it makes us more efficient and better. But we're not going to be the company that's just subscribing to every new latest technology that we think will solve a problem. And so on one end, I would tell you the team is a remarkable team in understanding how to adopt technology. So I think that's like the first thing that, that has to matter in a company. Because I think we've talked about this before. You can have the greatest technology on the planet. If nobody knows how to use it, nobody's trained on it, nobody's incentivized to use it, nobody knows how to onboard it. I mean, go through the list, it's good as nothing. It's only the greatest if everybody is not only knows how to use it, but is bought into it and understands the value of it. So we've built a very good culture around how we adopt technology and why we adopt it and how we train on it and why it becomes how it makes its way to the center of the company. Because if you go to a lot of companies, they'll often say, Oh, that, that software sucked. What I often see is like, no, your team sucked at adopting it. Like that's, I'm sorry, but that's the case. And what happens in those companies is then every new technology that comes up, they're always like, no, we don't want to do that. It's never going to work. And what they're really saying is like, they don't know how to use it or adopt it or make it work, and they don't want to go through the the pressure. So, so I'll start there. Two, and I give again our leadership team tremendous credit. We have something called FOS software that we've been building for a while. Every problem that comes up in the company, the the leadership team does an amazing job of really understanding how are we going to solve this problem, not just once, but as we grow, and can technology play a role in solving this problem, whether it be creating workflows, whether it be eliminating an extra step in a process, whatever that may be. It's very much like Amazon, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. We studied them a lot, how they solve problems, how they create small teams to solve problems. We use the proposal system just like they do. So any new initiative in the company, you have to write a two or three page proposal. You have to present it. It has to get adopted. But a lot of the way those problems are thought through is, can this be something that FOS does? Can this be something that our data team can solve? Can this be something that we can connect to Juniper Square or to Yardi? how can we create it to where we're solving it with technology? And that's why we don't go out there and say that we're just some tech company, because that kind of makes you sound like you have this magic wand. We might actually have some magic in our deal, but it's a philosophy. How do you take real world problems and solve them through technology and create a culture that wants to solve problems through technology? And that I think is the hardest thing to do we've had people come to us from the biggest financial firms in the world apply for jobs and we often ask them in interviews you know what type of technology do you use and what you find is a lot of these huge companies are are fully bloated not because they need all the employees because they haven't adopted any technology they're still it's like they're in the 90s still why because they have no great way to implement and as a company gets larger it's much harder to put software in it and so one of the I think benefit's afford is we adopted this mentality when we were 10 people and so it's it's just embedded in the culture we know no other way. So I don't know if that answered your question but I think it's it's kind of how we think about it. And the last thing I would say to that, you know, and I've talked about this before, a lot of people in our industry are deal focused and that's certainly important. You got to do good deals. But they're not operationally focused and this is where Jason and the leadership team have just done an A plus job is they have thought about the company as an operation that's got a scale that has to have processes, not just in how to find deals, but how to operate, how to send out quarterly reports, how to do due diligence on properties, how to ingest things into Yardi. I mean, name the million things you do. We've built a process and a routine for it. So I think what separates us also is we think about the business as much about doing good deals as how to build an incredible operation around it. And I think you talk to a lot of companies, the word operate is not used very often. And our mission at Fort at Capital is to be the best operator in the world, best real estate operator in the world.
0: Yeah. I think your spot on. Operations usually comes second to deal making. I just want to double click on what you said, because I think you're right in the sense that you can attribute 100% of the outcome to the team. But for any CEOs who are listening to this or leaders who are listening, the answer is not go hire a kick-ass team. You need to do that. But it starts at the top. It starts with the philosophy from you and from Jason, because your team will follow your lead. And if you don't give them permission to iterate, if you don't give them permission to be creative, if you don't give them permission to build, more importantly, if you don't give them permission to fail and budget attached to it, you will not innovate period. That's just how the innovation lifecycle works. And so one of the pitfalls that I see very frequently is you go out and you pay up for an incredible team who's very technically talented, but doesn't have the blessing from leadership to innovate. And they're stuck in a box and nothing happens. And similar to your the software sucks analogy that you provided, you know the people who they hire get blamed, other things get blamed as the fall you know, as the culprit of this lack of innovation, when the person, the individual or group of individuals who can affect change, you know, aren't looking themselves in the eye and saying, this is on me. You know, my technology leaders don't have a seat at the business table. They don't have permission to fail. They don't have budget to put against this to innovate. And so we can't take those things for granted. It's it's clear that you haven't, but for some of your peers who might be listening or people who aspire to be like Fort, I think it's a really important point. That it starts with the leadership. So if the leader doesn't believe in it, the team won't believe in it either.
1: A hundred percent. You have to have buy-in at the top, just like, you know, almost anything in an organization. And again, the second part is, and, and I think you just kind of said this is, it's not like just because we had it at the top, everybody automatically fell in love with it. I mean, there was a period in like maybe 18 and 19 where a lot of people were questioning us. They didn't like, it's not easy to adopt an entirely different way of doing things. It's just not, I mean, on our end, we give it a full year, but you have people coming in throughout the year. They're working there like, why are we doing this leadership? If, if anybody on the leadership team starts taking the attitude of like, well, I don't know why we're doing this either. And that permeates to their team. The leadership team needs to buy into it and they have to be willing to go through the pain. And even when people are complaining or we don't want to use this or let's get something else you have to stay committed to getting there. And there's the exciting, like you train on it, you kind of get excited that you're doing it. Then there's the like months of like, oh gosh, we didn't really, training was cool, but like we didn't really learn that much. And who knows where the people are that trained us. Like you have to, so for us, it was an OKR for like two years was like, we are going to make FOS at the center of our company come hell or high water. And it was the best decision we made. We made mistakes along the way. We're, we're still learning as we go, but we did adopt a culture that said like, we will make this the center. And if you can't get there, we, we almost got it to the point it was like, you can't work at our company, not because you're not great or talented. It would actually be impossible to do your work at the company if you weren't going through our, our system that we built. It, you can't do it outside the system. It doesn't work.
0: I love that. And for those listeners who are wondering about the memo that Chris mentioned, I don't know where you seek your inspiration, but there's a great book called Working Backwards, which was written by some early Amazon employees about a lot of their business philosophies, one of which is... You know, the memo and pre-reads and documentation, a lot of great stuff, but that's we can save that for another day. But I was glad to hear your reference to it.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, make somebody write a two or three page memo on an idea they have, how it's going to be implemented, what teams are impacted, how much it's going to cost, blah, 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 blah. Either A, it flushes the idea out to where by the time you've written it, you're like, okay, this was a bad idea. Or it's at least you've had to put the enough effort into bringing it in front of a team and saying it's something I believe in. And then from there, it gives everybody a very good opportunity to critique it, share how it's going to impact their team. That's like the... We won't even go down this road. But one thing that small businesses are good at is making decisions at the top and they don't realize they think it's great, but they don't realize it impacts five different teams that never bought into the idea. And so that's why ideas have a hard time of kind of making their way into a company because most people see them and the one team that came up with them thinks they're great. And the other five people were like, well, if we had weighed in on it, we would have at least told you to do this. But anyway, it's a better way to get all uh, buy-in from folks. And at least if people disagree with it, they've had a chance to see it, understand it. And it, you know, we still have that kind of e- disagree, but still commit mentality.
0: Love it. Well, my last question for you, and I realize for our listeners, I did promise a few other conversations, but in the interest of time, I've got one final question before we wrap, which is we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the markets that you operate in and the fundamentals. So rather than doing the deep dive now, an hour and 25 minutes in, what are the three things that you're most excited about or the three reasons why investors should care about class B industrial and in smile states over the next
1: 18 to 24 months? Okay. A couple things. I'll keep it super high level supply constricted asset class. They are not rebuilding this. Now when you, when we're talking about class B industrial multi-tenant shallow Bay, we're not talking about the big million square foot Amazon facilities. I get that stuff's being built. I'm talking about the 10 to 5,000 to 10,000 square foot spaces in mature neighborhoods in cities that are growing, that have been around forever. In fact, we believe it's depleting. So that's a great thing. Two, most of the Sunbelt is a growing population. Markets are growing. People are moving here. These are business-friendly states. We believe that'll continue to happen. So we think demand will continue to be there. And again, a lot of the tenants that are in our buildings are the businesses that are having a direct impact on servicing this growth, building this growth, maintaining this growth. So we like that. The third, and again, you told me three, but... You know the last mile is going to continue to matter. These are truly last mile properties. I mean, these are last quarter mile properties because of when they were built. At one time, this was the outskirts of town when they were built in the 70s. But now, 50 years later, it's at the center of town. So you have mature neighborhoods around them, mature commercial around them, a built-in population demand. And so we think that last mile is going to continue to matter, not just for e-commerce brands, everybody thinks, you know, Amazon wants to get it to you quickly. They certainly do. But so does every other business now. I mean, if you look at any small business or small company that's delivering goods or services, every single inch matters now, because especially with inflation, people are trying to reduce costs and being closer to the customer. There's no better way to reduce costs and to continue to get closer to the customer. And we don't see that changing. The last thing I would say, and I'll leave it at this, Operationally, these are not the most easy buildings to operate. They have lots of tenants in them. You know, we've bought in portfolios 300,000 feet with 150 tenants in them. That's almost like a multifamily property. Those are 2,000 square foot spaces. We call them like class contractor garages. But when you have 150 tenants, you're always signing new leases, negotiating renewals, doing some type of TI project on vacancies. They're, they're operationally intensive. And we think we've built a mousetrap to really keen in on that. Whereas there's a lot of folks in the investment world that don't get in our asset class purely because they don't want some of the operational lift. We think that's where the opportunity is.
0: I love that. So if you're a broker that's got an off-market deal, if you're an investor who wants to give you the billion dollars of discretionary capital, if you're a mentee who wants to pick your brain, what's the best way to Find you, reach you, follow you. Give us your details.
1: The Fort Podcast, which you're listening to now, you can find me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris and go to our company's website, www.fortcapitallp.com. Yeah, those are the best ways to get in touch with us.
0: Great. And for those of you who have feedback for me as the interviewer of this episode or want to reach out, you can find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash B Sedloff. Chris, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's great to dive deep into the journey that has gotten you to where you are. And I'm extremely excited to watch how you grow from strength to strength as a team at Fort Capital. So I appreciate you sharing with us today.
1: Brandon, thank you so much. You're a great interviewer, if nobody's ever told you that. And I appreciate your friendship over the last six or seven years. It's meant a lot. And I look forward to what the next seven years for us will look like.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. Subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.